All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to tell you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And Chen will be with us, actually, today. And a few minutes from now, about 10 minutes after the hour, Chen Lin will be joining me as my first guest. With regard to Chen's uh, newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. The time is nearing, however, when Chen will be accepting new subscribers. Uh, And uh, there's a good chance that you'll be accepted if you put your name on the list now. Uh, but uh, beginning in the new year, the first uh, first couple of weeks of the new year, Chen will accept a certain number of new subscribers uh, into his newsletter. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? To sign up, uh, to put your name on that waiting list, go to um, uh, for Chen Lin. Go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and uh, just. Uh, uh, put your name on that list, and you can also subscribe to my newsletter, Mining Stocks, uh, my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, from that site at miningstocks.com. I'd like to encourage you to continue sending your questions along, questions, comments, criticisms, gripes, what have you. Send them along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. I do receive a number of very interesting comments from subscri- uh, from listeners to this uh, to this show, and I do appreciate them always. Uh, take them into uh, take them to heart and uh, think about them, and uh, it it does play a part in what I talk about on this show. Uh, I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. We also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show uh, are Avino Silver and Gold Mines, Columbus Gold Corp, Cornerstone Capital, and Dynacor Gold Mines. I should just mention that I, I think we have four very outstanding companies. Uh, Dynacor, probably the most advanced. Well, Dynacor and Avino Silver, both profitable companies. Dynacor, a very unique model. We talked to uh, Jean Martineau last week. Uh, one of my favorite companies definitely is Dynacor. I think one of the lowest risk companies continues to make money in good ba- good markets and bad and has great growth os- uh, prospects, as you heard last week. Avino Silver and Gold Mines also doing very well with gold and silver Production, primarily silver production in Mexico. Columbus Gold is building a is a fifty percent owner of a major gold deposit that's being moved towards production by a major gold mining company, and that is uh, uh, in French Guiana. 
And Cornerstone Capital, whilst uh, maybe the most speculative of the four, uh, it definitely has uh, some world-class intercepts of copper and gold in a porphyry system in Ecuador. So I, th- I th- am very proud to have all four of those companies as sponsors, and we will be talking to the CEOs of those companies from time to time. Well, it certainly has been a difficult for these kinds of companies, to say the least. There is no question that uh, one of the most difficult markets that I can remember since I started covering them back in the early 1980s. But at this time, what is not realized by most investors, I think, and certainly by Main Street, uh, by the mainstream uh, Wall Street folks, uh, is that we are nearing a point in time, I believe, in which we will have the most ideal uh, situation for gold mining companies. And how can I say that when gold is down? When I'm, I've just got finished saying it's one of the toughest times I can remember since the early, 19, uh, early 1980s. Well, one of the things that really works in the favor of gold mining companies is um, a credit deleveraging process. As it happened in the 1930s, as it started to happen after uh, Lehman Brothers went down, what happens in those environments and exactly what's happening right now is the price of oil and other materials go down relative to the price of gold. Just to give you an idea of the uh, oil uh, prices to gold, uh, about a year ago, an ounce of gold would have purchased only 12 barrels, 12 or 13 barrels of oil. Today, an ounce of gold will purchase 22 barrels of oil. Now, falling oil prices, to just name one of the materials that are uh, involved in getting gold out of the ground, is extremely advantageous to those gold mining companies that have uh, bulk mineable low-grade uh, pro- uh, projects, especially the huge open pit mining operations that have to move enormous amounts of rock to get an ounce of gold out. So you can imagine with lower oil prices and energy prices, that's a big positive. It worked out that way in the 1930s for sure. Uh, the, when the cost of getting gold out goes down uh, relative to the price of gold, the 1930s were a huge time, an extremely bullish environment for gold mining companies. We saw it for a couple of years uh, following the Lehman Brothers debacle until 2011. And it's very curious to me that in 2011, the second half is when gold peaked. And up until that point in time, with quantitative easing, both gold and uh, oil, uh, both gold and the stock market moved. Uh, very, very closely with the creation of new money through quantitative easing. However, uh, it was exactly at that time when the U.S. dollar was downgraded that that started, that uh, relationship became detached from the creation of money and gold. Of course, the stock market continued to fly, continued to rise, and uh, only recently now as we've seen quantitative easing being uh, supposedly taken off the table, although I have my doubts, we are seeing an equity market that is starting to uh, come down pretty hard, and uh, we're going to be talking to two people, both of our guests today, Chen Lin and J. Michael Oliver, about these markets. We'll get their take on uh, all manner of the important markets that we like to talk about here uh, in, uh, on this show. But the dollar, uh, certainly, uh, you know, I think that the reason that the uh, gold markets were taken down, I believe, intentionally by a couple of the major players on Wall Street, uh, the reason is you cannot allow Wall Street lemmings to start to get the idea that gold was better than than the dollar. If, as Alan Greenspan himself has said on various occasions, if that were to happen, it would be game over for the U.S. dollar and for the United States economy, for that matter, uh, at least at this point in time. But uh, the dollar is clearly not what it used to be by a long shot. 
um, going back to the time it was taken off of gold, yes, we've been able to print endless amounts of dollars, it seems, but uh, as any good engineer will tell you, there's always limits in place in any system, and it could very well be that we're bumping up against those limits right now. Uh, certainly, the BRIC countries are very much aware that they have gotten the short end of the stick in the Anglo-American empire, and they are rebelling against that, putting together their own trading system and their own banking system. I think there's no doubt about that. Of course, the United States putting sanctions against Putin, I think, is ushering in and causing the, a day of reckoning to come nearer, rather uh, to come sooner rather than later. Uh, Putin warned back uh, when we started putting uh, sanctions on. Uh, on, when the United States and NATO started putting sanctions on Russia, he said that it will boomerang against the United States and NATO. Uh, and with gold prices collapsing and the ruble collapsing uh, just as fast, it may actually be that Putin, though, uh, however contrary to what you hear in the mainstream media, may have the last laugh. Um, why do I say that? Well, you know, yesterday, uh, I would just say that you shouldn't believe everything you hear in the mainstream media. The last couple of days, there was a rumor out there that Russia was being forced to sell gold in order to uh, defend its currency, in order to try to keep its economy alive. I put that question to a friend of mine and asked him whether he thought that was uh, possible. And he said, here's what he said. He says, quote, why would, Russian gold sell- why would Russian gold selling rumors be true? Russia has a big current account surplus. It does not need the cash and liquidity. Why would it buy 150 tons of gold over the last three months only to turn around and sell it? Putin isn't that careless. According to the latest TIC for October, Russia dumped $10 billion in treasuries, U.S. treasuries. Russia is currently selling oil in rubles and non-dollar currencies. The ruble is down a lot versus the yuan, but not nearly as much versus the dollar. If Russia can get away from the dollar completely, I don't think it would care what the dollar-ruble exchange rate is. I would bet good money that was just an insidious rumor spread by Wall Street, end of quote. Well, that's a different view, of course, than you're going to get from the mainstream. It's a view, though, that I think is worth paying attention to. I also think that uh, something that John Rubino, who's been on this guest, put out today, a very, very good article, a little short synopsis, showing what the ruble has done in gold. The ruble has, has done extremely well, of course. It has skyrocketed in gold. So those Russians that uh, continued to trust their government and kept their money uh, in the banks didn't do so well. But those that went out and traded their rubles for gold uh, have preserved their wealth. No, they didn't earn a profit, but they preserved their wealth, as John Rubino points out. Well, I know that I'm probably sounding a little bit like a broken record when I tell you that I think the gold markets are just about ready to turn around. I've been saying that for weeks, if not months. But today we will get an opinion from two independent analysts. One is my good friend and partner, Chen Lin, who will be joining me in just a couple of minutes here as soon as we go to the commercial break. I'm going to ask Chen what he thinks about gold and all manner of other markets as well. Uh, then at about half past the hour, J. Michael Oliver of Momentum Structural Analysis, a great newsletter, a very brilliant analyst. He will be with me to talk about uh, those markets. Well, certainly we're going to talk about gold and silver, bonds, equities, uh, the very important markets. Um, J. Michael Oliver has some very unique uh, technical 
uh, analytical tools that he uses that I have seen work very well. And so we're going to want to hear what he has to say. We'll look back at the markets in 2014 and look forward into 2015 with J. Michael Oliver. Well, we do have to go to break now, but when we come back, uh, I will be with Chen Lin, so don't go away. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE Amex Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O dot com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me my friend and business partner, Chen Lin. Chen uh, has been on this show a number of times in the past, of course, and he has a remarkable track record, and he has a very unique, I don't know, very difficult uh, style of investing. That's it's, it's difficult for me to put my finger on it when people ask me, uh, how does Chen, how is it that he's able to do so well? And I have a hard time coming up with it, and I think the reason is because Chen is Chen. There's nobody quite like him, and he has his own. He's just a very bright guy who works extremely hard and finds unique ways in the markets, uh, inefficient markets to make money. So that's the best way to describe Chen Lin for those of you who may not be familiar with him. But I'm really glad to have him again. Thanks for joining me, Chen. Thank you, Jay. Really good to have you with me again. I know uh, tomorrow you and uh, your wife and, and two children are going to get on an airplane and uh, fly on the other side of the world to uh, Hong Kong to visit uh, first your wife's family and then your family in, uh, in mainland China. Uh, you are from Beijing and your parents still live over there and then I guess they spend the winter months down in Shenzhen, but um, you've... Uh, what is your view as you know maybe you'll have a different view when you come back from china but how how are you viewing china now i i can tell you this chen that uh, the next guest that's coming on the show today j michael oliver from a technical point of view a couple of months ago uh got pretty bullish on the chinese equity markets and uh he was about the only person that i knew that was starting to feel sort of bullish about china but what are your thoughts about china and chinese equities at this moment Oh yeah, that was a great call on the Chinese equity. <laughs> you know, China. Uh, I'm, 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 I became uh, bearish on China since last year. I remember yeah. uh, about you know early last year, last year, almost two years ago. I mean, I was shorting uh, you know Australian dollar, shorting copper, shorting oil, the other thing. Uh, last year, I even gave a, a famous quote-unquote prediction that oil will go to forty-seven. That was. Uh, 
wow. last year, last summer, and uh, nobody believed that. But anyway, I I see China continue slowing down. Uh, it's very hard for the government to uh, to maintain the seven seven percent, and uh, I think they probably should set their goal to a three to four percent, which is more realistic. I mean, seven percent mm-hmm. require massive uh, QE, massive you know Chinese way of QE money printing. Mm. And pushing, and that's just uh, too much. You know, China economy already second largest in the world, and uh, the the rule of economy is that you know you just cannot keep going that, that mm-hmm. you know at this speed. So it has better to you know the, the always economic cycle. China has been born for like thirty years. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's time to take a breather. But, but on the on the hand, you, your friend actually made a great call on Chinese equity. Because China cut interest rate, that's uh, lead to the equity market boom. <laughs> I have a lot of people asking, you know, how, how do we invest in Chinese equities? I know you cannot. It's the domestic equity really has for the, you know, for people yeah. living in China. You can trade that for outside China, for the other share, edge share, whatever. You, there's no use. It's different, very different. Market. Yeah. Yeah, for sure it is. Although I know there's a uh, there's an ETF that I follow that has done quite well uh, with Chinese equities. FXI as a symbol, but I know that you have never really been keen on investing in Chinese equities. Your focus is mostly well, it's other places, but primarily North America, I suppose, and uh, not just uh, not just resource markets. Which is, of course, when you and I first met, you were primarily uh, into the gold markets at that time, into uh, oil and other natural resources, but you've really picked up on a lot of different areas, biotech. Uh, I think one of the things that makes you so unique is that you're not focused in one sector for sure, but you're looking for different ways to make money in different kinds of, uh, in, di- different, in different industries uh, at different times. For example, you've done very well uh, with ethanol uh, this year. You've done extremely well at times with, uh, with oil. Uh, you've done very well with, uh, with uh, pharmaceutical bio, bio stocks. Uh, you've done very well. I can remember you made a lot of money one time uh, after the financial crisis when you got into Farmer Mac. Uh, so uh, another one was paper stocks. When you got into paper pulp stocks, you did very well with that. Seeing ahead of time before the big guys could see it, you were out there. Uh, and and uh, picked up on some of those themes very early. So, you know how you do it. If people ask me how does Chen do it, I don't know. Um, how do you do it, Chen? How do, what, how do you how do you approach investing? Uh, thank you, Jay. I mean, I'm just looking for from outside in. You know, I'm not expert in biotech, right? so but I can look at the company, look at the balance sheet, look at their potential, and and then evaluate myself. I, you know, I, you know, same for for gold, for for you know, for oil, for days. I know a little bit more, but still, I'm more a, a long term uh, shareholder, and also trying to look for the idea that uh, the mainstream that you missed, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you mentioned paper pulp. Yeah, that was a classic example because it was Chile earthquake. At that time, people on the CNBC were talking about oh, the copper will get hit, but actually, <laughs> if you if you know that. Chile is a very long country, right? I mean, uh-huh. the copper is the north, and, and it, this is a more essential. So actually, it's a, it's a paper pulp uh, industry got devastated, right? So mm-hmm. the, 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 the paper pulp happened to their fact like to be on the ocean. 
so easy to ship out, and then the tsunami came, was devastated, actually created a huge shortage for paper mm-hmm. cards. And mm-hmm. I was able to, to take advantage of that. Right? So I remember I came out with my recommendation on my newsletter like, like one week before Goldman gave the recommendation. Right? Yes, I recall. <laughs> Congratulations on that. And, well, that, that's uh, a few years back. But, you know, that I like to look at all the different opportunities. I mean, uh, I like to look at all the different, a lot of different sectors as well together at the same time. Uh, because, yeah. you know, because, you know, like gold market, gold market was, was terrible in the past three years, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you just focus on, I mean, I know you are, but, you know, I respect that. But for me, is if I put there, I just look at it three years, even, no matter how hard I work, there's very little use because all the equity is coming in. Yeah. I, I'm looking at all the different sectors, and I, I pick the sector I think has most potential, and, and then I put more effort on that and then try to pick the best, best stock, right? I mean, also in the sector like gold, I really like gold, but three years ago, I saw gold mining company, you know, they couldn't deliver their promise, their costs are rising very fast. So mm-hmm. I told my subscriber, I'm done, you know, I'm, done, I'm underweighting gold, like mm-hmm. underweighting gold miner. Remember, it was like back 2012, there's people asking, how did you do so well? The gold market got down, coming down so hard. I said, well, I was underweighting gold miner. Right? <laughs> I was underweighting for the past three years. Yeah. So, but but it, it started to change. I started to see the, the, you know, the, the light you know, started start coming from the horizon. And uh, you know, I'm getting a little bit, and starting cautiously, as you said, cautiously excited about gold mining again. But mm-hmm. I'm still very cautious. Uh, yeah. So in general, that's my, 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 my take, right? I mean, I yeah. was bearish on oil I was last, since last year, so I was able to watch the oil price. I say, wow, this September, when oil was still 100, I saw, well, there's a great danger in energy stock. So I told Mr. Square on September 5th, right, oil still was 100. I told them to sell energy stock, to get out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like, you know, look back three months. If you didn't, you know, four months, if you didn't, didn't sell Early September, you will be killed, getting killed because most of energy stock down eighty percent, right? Eighty something, ninety percent. I mean, in the past three, four months. So I also, so that's the thing because you look at the big picture, you understand the industry, and allow me to, you know, to to see the moment. To, for example, underweighting gold miners three years ago, and get out of energy stock, you know, three or four months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your, uh, I, I guess your point is well taken in being cautious about gold because we're looking at, uh, uh, you know, day to day. For example, today it was up sharply in, uh, in Asia and Europe and then it got hit really hard as the, as London closed and New York uh, started uh, operating. And uh, the volatility has been pretty extreme in, in gold the last few uh, trading sessions. Do you see that continuing, Chen? Yeah, the, 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 it's very wild. The key is, is, is uh, tomorrow, right? Today is Tuesday. Tomorrow we'll have a Fed announcement. And there's, uh, I saw a lot of research. You know, and sh- the shorts are really, you know, waiting for this day. They are betting on the Fed will announce, uh, you know, they will no longer have, uh, have a keep interest low, rate lower for extended mm-hmm. period of time, right? They will remove that clause. So, uh-huh. so the shorts are waiting for that clause, and then they want to uh, give the the gold bulls a final punch, right? You yeah. can see today, it's, right now it's below twelve hundred again. It was just right. up and down, up and down. It's fighting, uh, fighting. You know, I, I, you know, yesterday I was writing my newsletter. I just saw the future start to drop. You can see the 
inverse of the future, which means yeah. the short attack. Because short in January, they don't want to short the front month, very close to front month, because they can get squeezed, right? You short too much. Yeah. Future, right. When futures, people call you gold, you don't have gold. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah, they, might, they might be asked to deliver the gold, and they can't do it, they so they go out the longer it. term. Yeah. Exactly. You can see that from future markets, uh, that uh, they tend to short a couple months ahead. So they, at least they can pretend they have the goal to, to deliver. I mean, yeah. at least they don't need to worry about that. Right. See, right. that just came yesterday. Oh, my. Yeah, so, and then what you see is, is the, uh, the short-term contracts get, get taken off and get canceled out before a delivery date. Right, the short term. So that's where the inverse goalies, right? We saw that. I mean, it's just all oh, these, the market's in chaos, okay, right now. And I think uh, the bears trying to push very, very hard tomorrow when the Fed announcement come out. Unfortunately, I will be leaving tomorrow night, so I won't see too much firework on Thursday. I'll be on the plane. Uh, but, well, you, uh, you probably can, uh, can keep track of things on the plane. I suppose there's a way, Chen. If but, I uh, want, I'm, well, but it's, you know, I don't know. I mean, the airline I fly, I'm not sure has, uh, you know, Cassie. I don't think they have a... Um, they have a wireless internet. But anyway, I probably just want to rest. You know. Yeah, that might I'm be so good. You've had a very successful year. Well, Chen, Chen, we just have a couple of minutes here yet. But let me, uh, let me ask you, though, you, made, you did well with ethanol last year. How does ethanol look to you now? Oh, I'm, I'm cautious, okay. I, um, I'm very cautious about ethanol right now. Um, I, I, was, uh, I, w- I was trying to see if I can get back in. But right now, uh, I, still, I only have a small position. I'm, I'm looking because I'm trying to see the supply demand. Tomorrow going to have another EPA data. I'm trying to see the data come out, how much gasoline increase in gasoline supply coming out mm-hmm. first, okay, and then how much storage. These are very, very careful, very, very important numbers. I want to see if there's any shortage. Uh, I see one potential is increase the gasoline demand will increase the ethanol demand to mix 10% uh, by law, mixing uh-huh. Uh-huh. So we may not be able to do that, but however, there are also a lot of uh, also have a large export market. So it's a very, it's a little bit complicated situation. Mm-hmm. I want to see if make sure um, I'm on, on the right side before you know putting more chips because the market is so so tough these days. You had uh, you've uh, you're, you're very you're quite cautious on gold, and I, I suspect uh, silver as well. Uh, though I think you're very bullish on uh, on the platinum group metals, aren't you? And Stillwater was one of your picks, I think, last year that did fairly well. I did more better on on, on the future in the platinum future. In the futures market. markets, okay. Yeah, yeah. Did, that did great because uh, Stillwater also did well, but but that that in future, you know, with some leverage. I mean, South Africa strike that that's really really the the great opportunity. You know, I, especially before. South Africa strike. Our friend Dennis Gardman was on CNBC. Say sell, sell. <laughs> Actually, we went down a lot, so I was able to buy at a very, very low price at seven hundred. Oh, when the old was nine hundred, you know, think about the gold went up four hundred dollars. <laughs> well, you should send Dennis Gardman a Christmas present for that. <laughs> well, I would have already, but I just I really appreciate. It. He was right in some cases, but this yeah, time was yeah. that was a questionable call. But anyway, yeah. so uh, but yeah, I like that because you know pollution in China is very very severe, and uh, we were in, in China like a year and a half ago. You know, it's very hard. You have to check the pollution index to decide whether you go go out to the park or go to indoor. Mm-hmm. You know, seriously, mm-hmm. it's the impact that that's, that's. I think that China will tighten up the pollution standard, the car emission standard. That will need a lot of palladium. 
and platinum, mostly palladium, and and also most of palladium is from Russia. Right? With all these sanctions against Russia, I mean, what if uh, Putin, you know, there's something, you know, they, they always risk, right? But sure. Back sure. to the corner. I mean, right now. Well, Chen, we we just have another minute left. Can you tell us, uh, give our listeners the names of a couple of your favorite? You you have two very low cost silver stocks that you like a lot, and there are a couple of gold stocks. Could you just give the names of those stocks, perhaps to to our yeah, to yeah, our yeah, listeners, yeah. so they can maybe follow up and research them? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like a, uh, I like a, a silver standard, silver stock, like a, a producer, and you know, that company uh-huh. has good balance sheet that don't need to. Don't need to dilute. Like Silver Standard, Quarterly on uh, First Majestic. They are you know, silver stock. I like gold stock. Of course, my favorite is Oceana. You know, Ovana. You know, uh, uh, and Orvana, yeah. yeah, okay. Ovana just sure. they just announced that they have a they they in cash now they pay off all their debt. So, oh, that's uh, good. Those yeah, those, those are stocks that can uh, company can can really take advantage uh, with oil coming down the. Mining cost. That's a key I like. Is the cost oh, of mining absolutely. can go down at least a hundred dollar next year. Absolutely, that can really reduce the cost, the operating cost, no doubt about it. I think Orvana actually reported an accounting loss, though, didn't they, Chen, last year? Yeah, they have accounting. They have all these write down, but you know they close down uh, a lower. Or they go from one mine that's a lower grade, but they focus on higher grade. I mean, so and then they they pay down all their debt, right? You look at it, the latest. Pr- pr- they have 16 million cash and I think mean, six million in debt or something. They 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 are very clean balance sheet and uh, should have a very uh, bright future. I mean, going forward, same as Oceana, sure. they can they have a generating a lot of cash flow at this current gold price. Okay, Chen. Well, we're out of time unfortunately, but thank you very much for joining us again today and uh, have a safe and happy fun time with your family as you're heading off to Hong Kong tomorrow evening. And I look forward to talking to you when you get back. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much, Chen. Well, folks, don't go away. We've got to take a commercial break, but when we come back, I'm going to be with J. Michael Oliver. Uh, he heads up a company named Momentum Structural Analysis. That's the name of his letter anyway, and it's done uh, exceptionally well. I was just telling Chen a little while ago about Michael's great call on Chinese equities, uh, but he has a very unique way of looking at the market, and I, I think you don't want to miss what Michael has to say, so stick around, and I'll be right back with uh, Michael Oliver. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. XV and CTNXF on the OTC. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, J. Michael Oliver. And uh, he is, uh, as I say, has been on this show several times in the past, not often enough, uh, but he's with us again today, and I'm very grateful to have him. He, uh, has, he's been with uh, some major, major companies on Wall Street. Uh, he's on uh, doing his own thing now, but he was with companies like, uh, well, those of us old enough will remember E.F. Hutton, uh, International Commodity Division. Uh, he's been involved in in the gold market uh, trading business for a long time, commodity division and chairman. Um, he, he studied with David Johnson, I should say, head of Hutton's commodity division and chairman of the COMEX. And um, so he's he has a very unique way of looking at the markets and uh, has made some very great calls. Uh, he should mention also uh, he had been, uh, Wachovia Bank had been a client of his in recent years. Uh, but I always enjoy his missives and find them very very interesting, and uh, I, I suppose I should be spending more time and more attention to them because I'd probably make more money if I did. Welcome, Michael. It's really good to have you with me again. Thanks for letting me be on the show, Jay. Appreciate it. It's it's really good to have you with uh, to, to have you with us again. You know, I heard a recent interview with Jeff Deist at the Mises. Uh, uh, institute Mises.org, and I would suggest to our listeners you might want to go there to listen to it. I thought it was excellent. It had less to do uh, with the kind of things we want to talk about today and more to do with uh, philosophical issues, economic issues. But I maybe should tell my listeners also The New Libertarianism, Anarcho Capitalism, is a book. Uh, that Michael wrote that I think is really worth uh, really worth reading if you care anything about uh, the issue of, uh, of free market economics and uh, uh, and the contrary what we're uh, seeing these days. So uh, I would just put that out to my listeners as well. The new libertarianism, anarcho capitalism, and that's uh, largely the topic that was discussed with my friend Jeff Deist uh, at the Mises uh, Institute. Well, Michael, you know, for the benefit of people who aren't really that familiar with your work, I'm sure there's some listeners that heard you before here today, but uh, tell us a little bit about how you approach the markets. The way I look at it is my understanding of what you do. It's like you're more like an engineer that would look at a bridge and start to see some some structural issues with the bridge, and that would be a warning sign that uh, you better pay attention or you, to what's going on here, because the bridge could collapse. Am I, am I in well, lay terms sort of saying true, what that's you do? Basically, what orthodox technicians seek to do when they look at price charts, mm-hmm. um, they they draw lines, support lines, resistance lines, trend lines, and so forth, and try to ascertain what the market's doing or what's it, is it breaking anything and so forth. Uh, I've long ago, twenty some odd years ago, shifted away from price chart analysis as a primary, and I treat it as a secondary. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I detrend price against a mean. And we've all heard the phrase, and we all tend to believe it, I think, that markets tend to return to the mean. Uh-huh. Well, there's a lot of means out there. There's 10-day averages, and there's 100-day averages, and there's three-year averages, and so forth. A lot of means around which markets in their price expiration process will you know, rise against or fall against or oscillate. Um, I look at all various time scales of means in any given market so that I have a 
appreciation that, you know, it might be in a near-term uptrend but a long-term downtrend, and I keep the two separated. Uh, I tend to focus more on the big stuff because that's where the big moves come from. And uh, this past year has been quite clear in several major markets using the biggest oscillators I have, including annual momentum, which is generally if you measure something against, let's say, a three-year average and you plot the price against it. I don't mean you overlay the moving average, but you literally plot an oscillator in which the price is plotted on the chart in relation to how much above or how much below that given average. So you turn a uh-huh. price chart into an oscillator, and you get a totally different vista of the trend and the trend structure of the market by doing that. You can call it detrending it or oscillating it or whatever. Uh, I do it in bar chart format, just like a price bar chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite often I'll focus on monthly bars, the big stuff, against uh, long-term averages. And mm-hmm. in so doing, uh, you can... T- usually early on identify the setup of a trend change. What generally happens at trend transitions, whether you're making a top or a bottom, is that the price action will continue to fool the trend followers, the majority who see new lows as you know, forever new lows or new highs as forever new highs. Uh-huh. But we all know, you know academically there has to be a new high that finally doesn't sustain and turns into a top. Sure. If you ask anybody, can it go on forever? Of course not. Then it's only an issue of when. Well, momentum will generally give you the signs of the win, uh, non-confirmations, for example. But most importantly, it develops structures visible to the eye and to a, you know, a straight edge that are not apparent on a price chart. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, for example, while a lot of people I can appreciate on a fundamental level who are very negative on the Chinese situation, Chinese stock market, based on yes. alleged malinvestments and so forth, which no doubt have occurred over the years, the, the problem was the Chinese market had returned to the 2008 low. So to the extent that those malinvestments might be truisms, mm-hmm. the price of the market itself was not pricing in malinvestments. It was pricing them out. So, you know, effective is like the S&P back at, let's say, 700. So my momentum work said there was uh, odds on favor, uh, favorite that China would flip up at the same time as the U.S. is having some problems. And it did. It went up about 40% since July when it broke out on annual momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, oil was another good example. Uh, it was lingering and languishing up there in the uh, 80s to the 100s, 110 and so forth for the last several years, just oscillating uh, sideways, really, in a, in a meandering pattern. And it was clear on annual momentum of oil, not on price, that when it dropped through $96 back in uh, August, uh, it had violated a massive four-year floor. It was not apparent mm-hmm. on the price chart. And mm-hmm. you pay dues for that. You're still paying the dues. So <laughs> I, I, see, I see price as a secondary. I use it to calculate uh, momentum studies. And that's, that's basically how I approach markets. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's worked very well. As you've, I, I noticed I, I took note uh, of the Chinese, uh, the Chinese call that you made. It was uh, a, a really good one because uh, I know at the time how negative I felt about China and how negative everybody else was talking about China. I said, what's this guy talking about? But sure enough, uh, I just talked to Chen Lin uh, from Beijing, a friend of mine, partner of mine, actually, and he said, well, that's because the interest rates went down in China, or, or I think that's what he said. I don't know. But you're, as a technical analyst, uh, not Caring why so much is just what is really going on and detecting that momentum and the structure. And so let's let's look at some of the things that you've some of the calls you made looking back in 2014, category by asset category. We uh, look at T bonds first. Um, 
you know, I mean, how many people I've known, and myself included, who turn bearish uh, on the U.S. Treasuries? You know, I mean, it seems that they seem so ridiculously low. Uh, we don't have enough savings in the economy. We we need to, uh, you know, you know, the, all the excuses, all the all the ideas that people have why we should finally see a bear market after I don't know twenty five years of bull market in in U.S. trade, whatever it is, mm-hmm. more than that, I guess. Mm-hmm. About that. Uh, uh, so. What are you seeing in uh, in the treasuries now, and what did you see in 2014? You called well, it right again. You were yeah. you were bullish on the, on the T bond. Well, early in the year in January, as the market came up off of a low for the December January low of late last year, early this year, came up to 132 in the futures. We're now in the 146s. Uh, it broke out over some very large long-term momentum structures that said, okay, the downtrend in price, uptrend in yield that had been underway since 2013 was over. We're going back up in price, lower mm-hmm. yield. Nothing since then has negated that. Uh, mm-hmm. I do suspect in 2015 there will be a point where T-bonds top. But you've got to realize that they're the defended fortress, just like the, uh, the German Bund and, and uh, to some extent the Japanese government bond. Right. They've got central banks defending them, therefore they'll be the last fortresses to fall. Right mm-hmm. now we're seeing the less defended fortress of high yield come under attack, as it should. Uh, the central banks have created a, uh, definitely a bubble. Uh, they forced people into high yield by denying them uh, conservative yields of mm-hmm. consequence, and they've created a bubble. Uh, that bubble is partly now being pricked by another commodity bubble with the oil market, which is like a torpedo, not headed to the S&P, but headed to the high-yield market, which in turn will be headed to the S&P. So it's an interesting situation that the central banks have set up. But that said, I still think their instrument, the 30-year bond, for example, is safe because it will still be sought out as a flight to safety mechanism up to a point. And I suspect that turning point will occur sometime next year. My guess would be, I think the S&P is probably going to top here, is topping since October of declared it a topping process, not just a corrective process like the prior sell-offs. But if the S&P, in fact, is topping, I think it's going into the 1600s rather rapidly, Hmm. probably within a quarter. Uh, That will be predetermined by where the market is in January. If it's below 2020 S&P, I think you're headed down. That point, from a move from the 2000 area down into the 1600s S&P, should probably cause the T-bonds to have their last flight to safety. And so at that point in time, if T-bonds, in fact, are pursued as an instrument of safety, if the S&P makes a low in the 1600s, which I think in the long run will be temporary, but could in the short run be enough, uh, that could be a point where T-bonds peak. So that's what I'm watching for. But right now, T-bonds still are positive. Upside price, slower well, yield. I see, but I mean, I'm, I'm wondering why, um, you know, if, if T-bonds have worked so well so far, why they wouldn't continue to work and why that – why. I mean, as long as as long as as long as the policymakers can convince people that the that the dollar is better than gold or the dollar is better than any other currency, why not just go there even if the rates are negative? <laughs> well, the dollar is uh, long term looks good. I think uh, I, I expected to move up to here. Right now, frankly, I look for dollar weakness over the near term, like the next month or so. Euro yeah. up, yen might turn up pretty significantly here. Uh, I know we think that the central banks control their currencies and their bonds, and I think that is a mistaken notion. They've controlled them well up to this point, but I think even they are not gods, and they push a market into a, uh, into a situation where it's way beyond where it otherwise would be. There's a snapping point, regardless mm-hmm. of their policies. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that the unwinding we're going to see in asset prices starting soon, if not already started, especially in high yield, is uh, merely an expression of the unwinding of their controls over the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, they don't control it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they've, they've priced things too be- way, way beyond where they should have been, and now reality's coming back to bite them. Mm-hmm. And, but I do think the last fortress to fall will be the, the government bonds of Germany, U.S., and Japan is an iffy one uh, that may come under assault sooner. But I do think our bonds and the German bonds are a safe place to be in the interim. But that could sure. change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I know, you know, as, as one who looks at gold mining stocks a lot, that's, that's basically what I do, gold mining companies, uh, that we've had periods of time when deleveraging takes place, when the risk on and when the market sort of implodes, as it did in 2008, 2009, as it did in the 1930s, when, in fact, uh, the gold mining companies really do well because you have all the commodities, including uh, we're seeing it now in oil. I just mentioned in the monologue today that uh, a year ago, uh, an ounce of gold would have purchased only 13 ounces of gold. Today it buys 22 ounces of gold, or did yesterday. Uh, And so uh, the cost of mining comes down, and the gold in real terms tends to go up uh, during these credit crises. That's what I've observed from a fundamental point of view. What, what are your thoughts on that? I concur. <clears throat> I think gold has had its, likely seen its low. Um, uh, Bob, the last time you interviewed me, was uh, we were stuck in the probably mid-year, and the market was stuck in the 1200s to 1300 zone on gold. Right. And I had taken a stance uh, early last year after the collapse. I was satisfied with the collapse. I thought that was enough possibly for a bottom. But I didn't see enough evidence of the bottom yet. It could go either way. It could take out the lows one more time dual lows at 1180, or it could try to go up and, and break out. I had numbers above the market, which it never could achieve. So it was stuck in a range, a bottoming range. Well, I know there was a lot of fear over gold taking out those lows, the dual lows at 1180. And, but my assumption was before it ever happened, and I put it in print, don't be afraid of that. The likely low is 1140, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had too many momentum factors saying there's support down at a given level on certain momentum charts that said if you'll just get to that level, you'll be okay. It should be support. Well, on uh-huh. a price chart, it was scary because it was a new low, below 1180. Yeah. That really scares people. But it was only, you know, what's that, 2% drop further below those lows. I think it was a trap. I think it was a mm-hmm. bear trap, and I think it quite probably was the bottom of the market. Right now, I'm, I'm about 60% convinced the gold is bottomed. Mm-hmm. We've rallied $108 off the low of October as of mm-hmm. the high of a week ago. Pulled back 30 bucks since then. And my big numbers on gold that say uh, that I, I'm up in the 90 to 100% conviction level at that point that the new bull is emerging are starting at 1290 to 1300 range, especially in the first quarter of next year. Mm-hmm. If we can post a monthly close up in that or slightly above that zone, I think at that point it's a table pounder. I think it's over. Mm-hmm. Gold's in the bull trend again. And I'm also reading that evidence in the spread relationship between gold and the S&P, which uh, I sent you a report. Yeah, you did. Thank you for that. I'm looking at it uh, dated December uh, 16th, I believe. Right, that's right. And, yeah, talk about that a little bit, if you would. Well, what I do is I simply measure the price of gold in relation to the S&P. I divide gold into the S&P, express Mm -hmm. the result as a percent, and you plot the chart. That's a spread chart. Um, Uh Uh-huh. It, it rises and falls. Uh, gold obviously has fallen in, in spread relationship, in performance, since its 2011 peak. 
But my work suggests that that spread is bottoming and it is only about three percentage points away from a major upside breakout Mm -hmm. uh, in momentum of the spread. Specifically, right now, if you divide spot gold into the S&P, cash price of the S&P, you end up with an average of of a percent of 60%, gold 60% of the price of uh, the S&P. S&P, yeah. If that rises to about 63 to 64% over the next few months, and it changes each month, I specify Mm -hmm. in the report, in my opinion, at that point, gold has turned the corner it will now, henceforth, for the you know, foreseeable future, outperform the S&P. Now, quite often, spreads will turn coincident with net, train, net changes in price as well. So if, in fact, gold is bottoming, as I suspect, then I would expect the spread to be giving off the evidence that it is, and it is. And so I have two things to look at there as regards gold. And if I get both of them, I get gold up through 1290 $1,300, and that's not that far away because we were uh, 1239 a week ago. Sure. Um, and I get this spread to break out, then it's, it's a major bullish for gold on a net basis, major bullish for gold on a relative performance basis to the equity asset class. Mm-hmm. I also happen to believe, for various reasons, and I could use some more evidence, but I, I tend this way, gold miners should be gold going forward. Uh, gold miners should, should outperform should, gold. They should yeah. outperform gold going forward. So, uh-huh. rather than buying gold, I would suggest you know you find your favorite gold mines or uh, ETF, ETF gold miners yeah. and, and proceed mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly there's some good good ones out there. Uh, I know one uh, that I just recently ran into uh, uh, is a Sprott gold mine uh, ETF that I think is is very good. But there is others out there as well. Uh, yeah, so this is looking really good. I notice on that chart that you're talking about the gold S&P spread, you're using a 10-month moving average. How do you determine what moving averages to use? It, there's really there's no uh, one that's a holy average. Uh, that's a long-term average. That roughly a 10 months is roughly 200 trading days. So it's roughly the same as using a 200-day average against which to oscillate the spread readings. Uh, I also commonly use a three-quarter moving average which is nine months, that's similar to a 10 months. So those are about equal duration. I call those long-term uh, yardsticks by which to measure price, oscillate price mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. I go out even further, I can go to three-year averages and so forth, but that's long-term enough for me to be con- convinced that if it mm-hmm. turns up on that scale of momentum, if the spread turns positive, mm-hmm. uh, and momentum will turn first, by the way, uh, before mm-hmm. it becomes obvious on the spread. Sure. That I'm sure. convinced. Uh, I'm convinced enough. It's it's a big enough time scale. You don't want to be looking at some short term thing, a ten day average or a three week average or something like that. You want you want something of long term duration. So when you get a signal, you have you a know it's real. Long term, yeah. Yeah. Well, then uh, looking at this chart, if we see this, uh, if if we see this momentum spread rising above that ten month average, that would be a good sign. That would mm-hmm. be a bullish yeah. sign. That would be a bullish sign. It would say from now on it's time to divest oneself of S&P equivalent assets and buy gold equivalent assets. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it when it when it went below that moving average. We're going back into 2012. That's when you said you turned bearish on on mm-hmm. gold. Uh, and, yeah, it's, you would have done very, very well uh, if you uh, sold your gold stocks and sold your gold and, and went into treasuries or something else at that time. Oh, went into the well. S&P. God forbid, but it, it works. <laughs> but things change, and that's, that's yeah. the nature of technicals. It's, the fundamentals uh, can always be true. The, the question is always, though, when does it become actionable and true? And that's a technical issue. And uh, Yeah. 
Well, you uh, certainly. Uh, what what is your what are your thoughts on oil? How much further do we have to go in oil crude before uh, we? When it broke ninety six, I expected a major decline into the seventies. I even postulated it could see sixty five. Uh, my main focus wasn't on where is it going to bottom. Yeah. But it would it would nuke it would have nuclear effects in other markets, and I yeah. thought that the reason oil did not implode when gold did two years ago, or when grains did, and held itself back, was that it wanted to be roughly coincident with the top in the S&P. And I think that may be happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, I suspect there's a lot of talk right now about buying energy stocks. And I can't argue with that, except I don't have a technical reason to do that. Yes, they've been beat up. Yes, oil's been beat up, and they're not going to zero. But uh, I suspect the time to be looking to buy oil and oil stocks is going to be late first quarter, early second quarter next year at levels lower than this. But around the time the S&P, if it breaks down, which I suspect, gets into the mid-1600s, at that point I think it's time to then look at oil and look at oil-related stocks as possible buys. Not Mm. that the S&P will be, but on a relative basis they will be. But Mm -hmm. I think they will go with the broad market. And I don't think they're going to turn up if the S&P is about to turn down, which I think it is. So uh-huh. I think it's premature to be an uh, energy-related buyer. Right. How is the same hold true for nat gas? No, nat gas is a different world. I think nat yeah. gas is a slovenly slow bull market. <laughs> it has its big pullbacks, and I suspect somewhere down in here in the mid to low threes, uh, it's a buy again. Most energy markets, if you plot them going back 10, 20 years, you know, even nuclear or anything else you want to look at that produces energy, has had the kind of collapse oil is just now having. So it's not their turn to suffer. They've already suffered. I mean, that gas was under $2 back uh, two years ago. So, I mean, you know, what do you want? I'm not going to zero. Uh, And, you know, you can look at supply and demand and all these things, but, you know, ultimately price is either underpriced to a mean or overpriced to it, and I still see natural gas as as an already bottom uh, bear market, uh, uh, a fairly early bull market with another leg or two left in it. And um, so I would be looking positively at natural gas, certainly from, let's say, 360 down to 310 or something, uh, mm-hmm. though there's more specific timing could be done. But I wouldn't connect it at all with the oil. Mm-hmm. I don't think the connection is justified. Yeah, yeah two different worlds, as you say. Yeah, I, so. um, I would just, uh, I see my engineers telling me we only have a couple of minutes left. So this is sort of a, uh, maybe a philosophical question or a, a question for a technician from a fundamental analyst. Uh, David Jensen is an engineer who uh, is on this show uh, often, uh, and he talks about um, how the he believes the and I do too. I share his belief that there's some hanky panky by some of the big, uh, let's say, oligopolistic players in the uh, in the paper gold markets. And David believes that uh, that you that you can't make much sense from a technical perspective uh, on the com- on the COMEX uh, market or you know some of these paper markets he says the uh, the uh, Shanghai market is a pure physical market and that's gold he says you may as well be calling it widgets or uh, you know or anything else uh, it, because it's really mostly a paper market and very very small amounts of it get settled out in real uh, in real bullion what, what would be your response to a te- to a, a fundamental guy like David an engineer who doesn't uh, think there's much uh, much value in looking at technical well, with, analysis from the with, paper with due markets. respect to him and, and you, uh, I disagree. I think the, the market, uh, the gold futures market, has always been somewhat paper in that sense. Mm-hmm. That it's not uh, not often delivered against or accepted delivery of. That's a small minority of the other end. 
And I think the technical behavior of gold is uh, optimally visible. It is not uh, mysterious. I've not had any problems with it for several years, and I'm sure there's others who haven't. Uh, the explosion in 2009 to 11 was readily apparent. The top in 2011-12 was readily apparent with momentum. And I think what now is a bottom is is pretty clear. And its behavior is, as far as I'm concerned, no different than any other market on a technical basis in terms of... Uh, especially at transitions where a market gives you deceitful readings, like a new low in gold, for example, or the S&P last month, a new high in the S&P. Uh, you have to expect that deceit. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's manipulation. I think it's just over-enthusiastic trend followers the other way, in this case, gold, the bears. All right. Well, good enough. They were going to party, and they didn't party. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, that's fair enough. You know, I mean, okay. as uh, as another technical analyst said on this market uh, on this show, he says, "Jay, I don't know of any market that hasn't been manipulated at time from time to time." So that's just you know human nature. Mm -hmm. But whatever. Uh, we are out of time, Michael. I want to thank you very much for being with me again. Always a pleasure, and I look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. And thank you, Jay. Well, folks, so that's all the time. As I say, we have uh, tomorrow. I'll be talking to Daniel, actually, to David uh, Jensen. He'll be with me uh, on my podcast tomorrow. I posted at uh, jtaylormedia.com. Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity will be with me at the end of the week. Uh, and next week, also, we've got uh, Frank Holmes and Jeb Hanviger will be with me. So you won't want to miss uh, what those gentlemen have to say. Thanks to Tacey Trump, Matt Widener, uh, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE Amex Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O.com. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. 